because of my, my inclination and motivation to solve world hunger, if learning helps, I, I make sure that I learn what I need to learn. And what's interesting is I have never reached a point where I get the sense that I have learned everything that is, that is to be learned. I, every day I find that, you know, oh, I need to know a little more about this. And whether I proactively seek out a, a course or an online course or training and so on, or it is by just virtue, by virtue of talking to you and, you know, working with others, that's the learning experience as well. So, in fact, uh, uh, the IBM ex-chairman, Janita Meri, she actually made a comment, uh, it's, it's public, that it is not about hiring graduates with college degrees and so on. For the next generation of talent, the ability to learn, the ability to learn and willingness to learn is the core competency that, that we should be looking for. Because you could graduate with a certain you know discipline from coming out from college today, but 10 years from now, or maybe two years from now in today's times, if you are not open to you know, learning new ways of doing things, you will be old school very quickly. With me on the show is E.G. Naden. Naden is the Chief Architect and Strategist for Red Hat North America. Thanks for taking the time to sit with me and talk today. You're very welcome, JT. Glad to be here. So let me start by getting a little bit of clarification on what you do for Red Hat. What exactly does being the Chief Architect and Strategist actually entail? Great question. What a way to start the day here. So by design and by nature, by our DNA, we are a software engineering innovation company. Um, our CEO would tell you, Paul Kamir, that um, we are the world's largest enterprise software company with an open source development model. And I start by, with that to lead up to my role because uh, we, we can talk technology all day long, but then technology is only as good as it is relevant to the business of the customer. In my role as the chief architect and strategist, it's a two-part role, if you will. Um, it is to work with the executive leadership of our customer base on how and where the next generation technologies can be relevant. So that is the strategist part. And because different customers, are, they cover the spectrum, JT, where some are avant-garde, they are forward-thinking, they would really want to jump into the fray and be the leaders and be even the inventors of said technology. Well, there are others who take a wait and see. Let us see how successful this is. What is the adoption and so on. So there is always a big spectrum. But then, you know, it is about the relevance of the technology and the timeliness as to when is it the right time for said customers. So that's the strategist part. Now, even if the CIO, uh, the, the SVP, the more importantly, the CFO is ready to invest in the technology. The question comes up, okay, how, what shape does it take in our enterprise? And that's where the architecture comes in. So enterprise architecture is sort of at that confluence where IT meets business. So there are business uh, conversations that could be enabled with the right architecture and it can be sustained in a long-term basis. So my role, in a nutshell, is to be very cognizant of the technologies, the engineering solutions we bring, but not talk technology, but the relevance and application of that to our customer leadership. So since you interface with the, with the customers directly, and I know your history has been, like you've, you've covered a lot of, a lot of the industry, uh, when I was looking through your LinkedIn profile, you know, I saw that you worked at several universities, you worked at HP, uh, even MCI, which is a name I have not heard in a very long time. So let's let me start by asking, how different do you see the culture at Red Hat versus the other places that you've worked? Well, um, to clarify, if I, if I claim work experience at universities, that would not be uh, right because okay. what I am, my, my role is more in an advisory capacity. You are correct. I am on multiple advisory boards. I am a corporate mentor at uh, Rain State. And so 
I take great pride in giving back to upcoming generations by contributing to what could be in place at these universities from a curriculum perspective for the aspiring uh, students, right? So that's my role. It's more advisory. Um, if I really had, you know, like I was part of a faculty and I have taught and so on, that, that would be a huge feather in my cap, I would say that. Um, but more to your point, um, the culture. So open source, you know, when we look at, uh, hear about those two words, more likely than not, what comes to people's minds is uh, software. And maybe in uh, to a smaller fraction, they may actually be thinking about Raspberry Pi and open source hardware and so on. But the fact is, and even for Red Hat, it, I must say, you know, I, I have been for about, it's coming up on six years with Red Hat, but Red Hat is much older than that, about you know 25 years plus and, and, and more. So when we started, I would like to say that we ourselves thought open source is all about software. But then very quickly we realized that it's really about an open mindset. It is really about not so much just about how you code, but how you collaborate and how you are transparent about you know what is being done. When I before COVID, when I was traveling, I would be you know the Uber driver would ask me, so what do you do? And who do you work for? Just to strike up some conversation. Mm -hmm. And some of them actually knew Red Hat too, by the way. You know, as the company, the Linux company, they would say. But then there are others who wouldn't. And to them, I would say we are like the Wikipedia for software. And so that is kind of our bread and butter. But then the culture is more about you know it's really open. For example, there is a a, a list, an email list that we have that our CEO responds to and actively monitors, and any employee can actually put in uh, you know a comment there, and then you know he, he, they will get a response. And this is one company where if there are um, new policies uh, being put in place, somebody will raise their hand. I don't, you know, I'm not for, you know, it's the the whole idea of permission to speak, sir. And, you know, that type of uh, controlled environment is very alien. And uh, the decisions that are, that come on, in fact, there is an open decision framework that is also public that we actually espouse. So it's really uh, an environment where collaboration is key. The, the, free to the freedom to express what you think, uh, even from a policy standpoint, is, is most definitely there. And that's not to say that you know, just because you said it happens, it cannot. You know, this is a company of you know sixteen thousand and growing employees. So, you know, sometimes getting agreement between three people can be a challenge, let alone sixteen thousand. But there is that open channel of communication, absolutely. So that's that's how the culture is different. So taking the next step from the conversation about culture and kind of the open mindset, since you deal with corporations and you interface with them directly, and of course you have your experience in the past from working with companies like HP, have you noticed that companies now are starting to understand that open source is not just the software side of things, but is also kind of the fundamental understanding of that openness and collaboration? Absolutely. So first off, uh, I will start by saying um, we just did a survey of uh, the industry at large. Um, uh, many of our customers as, and other enterprises. And some interesting statistics that came out of that report, 90% of IT leaders are using enterprise open source, which is really you know open source software, but that is robust, secure, hardened with the support that is much needed. So you don't want to lose sleep over open source. So that's enterprise open source. 79% expect their organization's use of uh, enterprise open source software for emerging technologies to increase in the next two years. And my read on that, JT, is that, yes, you need to have research and development labs and uh, companies who have secret sources, so to speak, of uh, what their core competency is that they differentiate themselves. And they absolutely do have to do the research. But when Companies say that it's a cliche term, every company is a technology company. We are a technology company first and then an airline and then a bank and then a retailer and so on. It means that it is not the 
technology itself that is their secret sauce. It is how they apply it. The, the formula that Pepsi makes is a secret sauce. I get that. They're never going to open source that. But then the, the core technology concepts that are embraced, whether it is going to the cloud, uh, you know, using containers, uh, DevOps, and all of these actually emerged from the open source community over the years. And the reason why these companies are adopting and going, you see the high numbers, is because it is they are actually future-proofing. They are actually modernizing to an environment that is, they, they, they are, you know, they are on the bus, they are on the train, otherwise they miss the bus. And it's not that it won't change, it will change. And that's the reason why they are actually jumping into that open source um, uh, technology paradigm. Now, just like my, my kids are more in their uh, early and late 20s, but you know, you grow up into the person that you are based on the friends you have, you know, as in your growing years, you know, the company you keep and so on. So by dint of their participation and active engagement in the open source community, the culture rubs off on them. And they get the fact that, hey, there is, there is something working here. Things are happening through collaboration, where, whereas within the enterprise, more likely than not, they are going to see silos and factions or my way or the highway and uh, those types of mindsets. And typically what happens is leadership, executives, uh, CXOs would actually approach our leadership to ask, hey, how is this culture working for you? And in fact, it, it has become even more interesting in recent times, JT, with the IBM uh, acquisition of Red Hat, there was this curiosity, how will these cultures blend together? And what came out was that it is not really about the cultures blending together, it is how the cultures will work together. So there is a difference. It is not that you know it has to change. It is you know Red Hat retains its independence because the culture is valued and uh, there is every intent to keep it pristine as it was. Otherwise, the you know the the the, the real value is in the ability to work with other cultures. And so going back to the customers, they approach us to hear from us. How is it working for us? And what are some techniques that could be uh, applied to them. And to facilitate that, just like you have communities for open source software, we have open practice libraries that are public as well. So imagine having collaboration techniques um, and different decision frameworks. Uh, there are very few secrets at Red Hat. You know, maybe how much, uh, you know, employees get paid and so on that, you know, we don't plan on releasing that. But my point is anything that if we acquire somebody uh, and, you know, any other company, we will open source that. You know, not doing that is a non-starter. They, they may have been proprietary. So the culture that is actually espoused and practiced at Red Hat, the techniques that we use have been open sourced as well. And I'm not talking software. There is an, a whole open source practice library that customers can use. So if I had to distill what I said, customers are in the open source community, they work with us. And based on that, they actually see that the culture actually um, you know, emerges through that participation. They value that. They talk to us and want us to talk to them about how we, uh, how we embrace this culture. And we provide libraries of open source uh, practices that they can actually adopt and, and, and grow and collaborate to grow those techniques too. So since you, since you touched on the IBM acquisition, when that happened, I remember getting just hounded by tons of friends who were hearing about it for the first time that, that weren't really in the open source Linux world. And we're just trying to understand it. And it was, it was kind of funny when they're like, hold on a second. So IBM just spent 34 billion to purchase a company doesn't really own anything because they give it all away for free. And I'm like, yes. And they're like, how does that make any sense? And it was interesting to have those conversations and explain that what Red Hat brings to the table is not just the software. It's the culture. It's the mindset. It's the collaborative development. It's the forward thinking. And it's fantastic to see over time as the industry in general continues to understand, oh, actually, this is a great thing. This works fantastic. 
one of the comments that I've made in the past is that it kind of surprises me that in the 21st century, this is an argument we even have to have. You know, this is effectively the scientific method. Everybody working together, collaborating, find out what works, what doesn't work, what advances things, and then everybody benefiting from that. But yet, for some reason, you have to kind of like convince people that, hey, the scientific method thing, it's really good. It works. We can apply it to other things. On the, also on the IBM front, you came to my attention actually through an article that I had taken part of on opensource.com that was shared on LinkedIn. And when I first looked at your profile, there was something that just jumped out at me and grabbed my attention instantly. And it was the IBM Quantum Associate Ambassador. Now, without question, that has to be one of the coolest titles I have heard in a long time. <laughs> um, and to, to paraphrase the line from, I forget what uh, movie it was that Leonardo DiCaprio was in, but it was, at first you had my curiosity, now you have my attention. Can you talk to me a little bit about what exactly is that role? What is what does that mean? Absolutely. So there are, I think there are two or three questions, uh, you know, packed into what you just shared. And if I may, I, I will try to touch upon all of those. Mm -hmm. I do want to go back to the acquisition uh, experience, if you will. I remember it was a Sunday in October, maybe going back a couple of years. And you're talking to somebody, even though in LinkedIn, it may, and you might even see it in LinkedIn, when I left HP and came to Red Hat um, a few, uh, about five plus years back, uh, I had gone through seven acquisitions in HP. It's not like I joined HP, came through, mm -hmm. you mentioned MCI System House and uh, you know EDS. And uh, so those were all companies that I had worked for and then you know, got grandfathered in, if you will, into the HP. But my point is that every one of those acquisitions, I would see a pattern where after you know a few years, you will start seeing the 401k plans merging and the expense report system being consolidated and the logo disappearing and the brand going away. And truth be told, IBM themselves has a track record of doing that for other companies. So that Sunday afternoon, I started getting texts too. And when the announcement went public and uh, you know, the text was more like, so are you now going to be blue hat? Is your red hat now going to change purple and all of that? But you're seeing me wear the red hat, <laughs> a bright red in color as it ever was. And the the interesting thing is $34 billion from IBM for red hat. If they did what they did to other companies, they're kind of losing the competitive advantage that they paid for. The difference, the, the the independence of Red Hat is IBM's value. Because now, after having been, even though IBM has got, you know, to their credit, there's incredible contributions from a Linux perspective and so on. Um, we have been working with them even before the acquisition. But there are many aspects of how IBM did their business uh, that are proprietary. So for them to say that, hey, you know, we we do this too. And you know this is this is the way we can operate. That changes their image. So it is to their advantage to retain you know the manner in which Red Hat conducts itself. So they don't want to touch us. That's number one. Number two, Red Hat actually provides. You are very correct. You know it is the culture and the independence that is one of the core reasons. But even from a technology standpoint. IBM is now able to go and tell the customers that, hey, it doesn't matter what cloud environment you are in, we are there for you. That's what the Red Hat Container Platform provides them. So there are those aspects that are definitely going for them. Now, from a Red Hat perspective, you know, we are in 35 countries or so. IBM is in 170 countries. Uh, we are, uh, you know, 16,000. They are more like in six digits, right? So there is a order of magnitude difference. Even for a moment, if you were to assume IBM is closed, they are not as closed as you might think, but even so, it is an entry, it is kind of like walking into the warehouse that Amazon has after going to your local, you know, mom and pop uh, deli or something, right? That, that's the feeling I get when I walk into the world of IBM. So even though there may be some walls, the, it, it's a huge world out there for us to grow into. Quantum computing is one of the, so when I had the opportunity to ask uh, Arvind Krishna, the current CEO, uh, before he became CEO, so what does innovation mean from an IBM perspective? So he was talking about technologies that IBM has invested significant research effort in. Now this research is 
you know, in the Watson Research Center and, you know, uh, where they, they are actually looking into the next generation of computing technology. So, uh, because Moore's law has actually reached a stage where you can no longer just multiply the processing power like, you know, we used to, you know, with the Intel processors and so on. So there needs to be, now the problems have, you know, graduated, especially with the amount of data to be processed, that we need a different paradigm. So concepts of, you know, uh, the, you know, in the binary world, it's either a value of one or zero. But quantum actually allows you, in the, with, with similar hardware, you can actually have multiple states, multiple values represented, not just a yes or no or a one or zero. That just, you know, takes to an exponential level the, uh, the, the solution techniques and therefore problems that can just not be even, and we cannot even think of addressing through classical computing, suddenly we have opportunities for, you know, to address through quantum. So that's a, literally speaking, it's a quantum leap to the types of problems that could be solved. Now, I will also say that there are some problems which would actually take more time if you apply quantum. You know, you just have to have the right paradigm applied to the right problem domain. So IBM has been advocating and they have ambassadors for quantum computing. And it does take advocacy because, you know, even today there are customers who are thinking twice before going into the cloud. And, you know, people, I'm sure there are leaders out there I mean, cloud, that, that's a done deal, you know, that's like so 2015 or 2018 or something, right? But there are companies who are still tiptoeing and they are still wait, wait, wait and see, ooh, public cloud and so on. I say that because for such companies, so similarly, companies are quantum computing. What is that? Why should we bother? Things are working today. So what what's the game? So... If there are mad scientists in the companies, those are the leaders who are typically prime candidates to think about the art of the possible or what is seemingly impossible. And Red Hat comes with a connections to customers who want to innovate, who want to think about next generation technologies. So Quantum Associate Ambassador is a program which is usually extended only to IBM employees, but what IBM did was opened it up for certain Red Hat leaders. And this way, uh, it is not that we become a PhD in quantum computing overnight, but we can go to our customers and talk to them about why quantum computing. And there are different ways to do it and uh, you know what IBM is doing and also what how Red Hat and IBM are working together with the container platform and so on to provide quantum as a service. So that that's the kind of look at us as a technical evangelist for the quantum computing paradigm that IBM has been espousing. Okay, I want to put a a little pin in the quantum discussion for the moment. I definitely want to get back to that. But before we dig into that further, I wanted to kind of wind the clock back a little bit more. When you were younger, did you ever perceive that this is what you would be doing with your life? Um, Wow. (laughs) So let's see. I'm just going to think out aloud to respond to that question. Um, I'm someone, as you could possibly tell, just by virtue of sticking to the same logical employer despite the acquisitions, I I never really quit my job, so to speak. It just changed for me. I must say the switch from HP to Red Hat was definitely uh, a switch that was proactive, I would say that. For, for different reasons. Uh, I, I had more freedom. My kids grew up and they went to college and suddenly I found that I don't want to go for a startup, but Red Hat seemed like as close to a startup at that time that you know would uh, gel with uh, my thinking. I was always um, more about you know getting you know proving my, myself and my abilities uh, from a technology perspective that this guy knows what is talk, what he's talking about. Gain the street press, number one, and then. My next step was to apply it for our customers. If the technology cannot be applied, then to what avail? And then after doing it for a few customers, it is more like, how can this be scaled? It is one thing to do it for one customer, but if I could come up with or do things that can be, you know, be a force multiplier. So instead of 
just one bank, there are there is a workforce that can apply to multiple banks and then multiple industries. And I thrive on that. There was a leader, uh, a mentor who would say, you know, just make sure you the, your breadth of impact and your sphere of influence, you work on those two. How you do it is up to you. The rest will take care of itself. And that's what I follow even today. So um, did I want, so answer to your question, I certainly aspired and wanted to increase my sphere of influence and breadth of impact. And that's what Red Hat is allowing me to do. The degrees of freedom that I enjoy in my role. So in my role as chief architect and strategist, even though it is for North America, you know, little secret, I actually, I'm not shy about going global. And I work with my peers and there are global enterprises. So we, you know, we, we look at what an oil and gas company is doing in North America and in Kazakhstan and in, you know, uh, different parts of Middle East and you know, APAC and so on, right? So we, we come together. There is a network. Uh, there is a community internal of chief architects there where we come together and then collaborate. And there is absolutely no limit. In fact, the, you know, when Bezos went to outer space with, uh, you know, Blue Origin, that's a customer we are talking to, by the way. You know, so, and Red Hat Linux has made it to space too. Uh, so I was about to say sky is the limit, but now we have crossed that barrier too. So when I start the day, you know, where my leader is like, hey, now have at it, do what you want to do, not what you have to do, but make sure, you know, we are in line with our goals and, you know, uh, objectives and all that common sense. That is certainly what I was looking to do. And from that perspective, my dream has come true, coming true every day. So when I look at people that are technologists that have worked in the field for a long time, it always seems that they arrived to where they got in as, the, as an adult from kind of two perspectives growing up. One was just the fascination with technology and learning and trying to figure out, you know, what, what is possible. The other is the problem solving aspect of I'm faced with the problem what can I do to resolve this problem? What is the best tool? And obviously that's a Venn diagram and there's a lot of overlap. But which of those two would you say growing up, you know, as a, as a, as a youth and then into school and then early career, which of those two would you say you lean more into? The discovery of learning or the problem solving? Um, more the problem solving. Now, because of my, my inclination and motivation to solve world hunger, if learning helps, I, I make sure that I learn what I need to learn. And what's interesting is I have never reached a point where I get the sense that I have learned everything that is, that is to be learned. I, every day I find that, you know, oh, I need to know a little more about this. And whether I proactively seek out a, a course, or an online course or training and so on, or it is by just virtue, by virtue of talking to you and you know working with others. That's the learning experience as well. So, in fact, uh, uh, the IBM X chairman Ginny Romeri, she actually made a comment. Uh, it's, it's public that it is not about hiring graduates with college degrees and so on. For the next generation of talent, the ability to learn, the ability to learn, and willingness to learn is the core competency that that we should be looking for. Because you could graduate with a certain, you know, discipline from coming out from college today, but 10 years from now, or maybe two years from now in today's times, if you're not open to, you know, learning new ways of doing things, you will be old school very quickly. So that's a core talent. So yes, the, you know, interest and enthusiasm in learning is most definitely a core tenet, but then if it, to, you know, I, I don't want to just learn something for a science fair project, or more it is, you know, let's apply it. Uh, even when I have been judged, uh, you know, judged multiple science fair projects at high schools and colleges and so on, my first question to the candidate is, how can this be applied? You know, they get kudos for even having thought of that very innovative approach, but then if it can be readily applied with real life impact to water way, right? So I start with that and then backtrack into what needs to be learned. I mean, what, what I'm hearing is that, you know, modern problems require modern solutions, that the, the classic thinking, it's good, we've used it, we've made great strides with it, but there are problems that we're facing now which require innovative thought processes. 
looking back at when open source came onto the scene, I, I you know, I, I wasn't quite around at the time, but I've, I've read a lot about it. And there were a lot of people that were like, this is just kind of a, a triviality. This is an, an interesting little curiosity. But as it grew and developed, then people realized, oh, wow, this is actually amazing. This is fantastic. And people's understanding of, of open source and Linux, from my experience, it, it, it's one of two directions. Either they hear about open source, and then as they kind of look into it and research it, they then find out, oh, there's also this thing, Linux, that's an operating system. Or they first hear about Linux, and then they look into it and research a little, and they realize, oh, it's, it's actually open source. Which of those two would you say you came from? Did you first understand open source and then discover Linux, or was Linux kind of how you found out about open source? It's, uh, it certainly didn't start with Linux. It started more, in fact, my exposure to open source really started with uh, HP, even before I came to Red Hat. And the interesting dynamic there was, at the time when I was with HP, I was part of HP Enterprise Services, and we had then uh, HP software. And um, yes, uh, in theory, we were supposed to be independent of, you know, be accommodative of whatever is right for the customer. But then there was also, you know, the, that undercurrent, hey, uh, you're an HP stockholder. And so there is always that question, you know, why not HP software? So we would hear both and, you know, we are all human. That, that's, that's nothing new, no secret there. But what's interesting is um, when we look at the, the competition uh, in the when talking to customers, and quite frankly, even internally within HP, that was the that was the dynamic. So when we had our own developer workforce in centers of excellence and so on, and in my role, I had to I was the chief architect there for the reference architectures and technologies used globally for a workforce of 50,000 at HP. And I would go and say, okay, here are the tools we have from an HP perspective internally, not to customers. And then I would get pushback saying, but we're using this open source tool that is working so well for us. And you know, that it, the, 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 the features, they kind of build themselves and uh, it, it grows. And whereas with, this is not a ding on anybody, but it takes time that when it is proprietary software, they have release cycles and, and so on, where they are kind of held hostage to when it is available. So, and open source, they feel like they have a say. So the internal developer suddenly has emerged as a key customer because it is the developer who actually implements the features for the external consumer. And empowering the developer with the tools they need is uh, vital. And if the developer speaks and says, this is what we are going to do, and quite frankly, there is little that companies can do to stop the developer from using a open source project. You cannot police, you can police to some extent, but not to, you know, um, having uh, micromanagement techniques in place. That's going to be counterproductive. So that's where I got the exposure, huh? I could be the chief architect at HP advocating, you know, usage of HP software, but there is a different force at work and it is effective. And adoption is key. We are in a very different world, have been for some time where an edict from the CTO or the CIO, or, you know, VP of development saying, thou shalt use this to starting today, not going to work. We may even risk losing the talent. They may go west. And, uh, you know, hey, this is not the environment I want to work in. So there have been, I got exposed to the culture of open source and the freedom. And, you know, open source is usually ahead of the times. You know, the features that customers want are some, it's kind of like the auto show that I go to in Chicago in February. It kind of shows you the model cars that are to come in the coming years. And you get a sense for that in advance. And that's exciting. So that's how I got exposed to open source and more so in the DevOps space, not so much the operating system and Linux flavors and so on. Yeah, a lot of people that I talk to that, that work in open source, they kind of have that story of like their aha moment when it finally kind of clicks and they're like, oh, wow, there's like all of these possibilities and all these restrictions that I had and limitations have just faded away. And now if I can dream it and I can commit to it and work on it, I can accomplish it. 
that for me is is always one of the most interesting things to hear people talk about is, is that kind of realization and that point when they learn what open source provides. Are there other things in your career in in you know the industry and open source that you know now that you wish you had known back when you were like 20? Yeah. Um, so I, I will actually use my aha moment to make my point. I am in sales, full disclosure. Uh, yes, I am the chief architect and strategist, but I talk to customers, I speak at events, and I am evaluated on how effective my role is. I am in uh, being an advocate for customers who want to subscribe to the Red Hat subscriptions. I'm, I'm just stating it as it is. I cannot be you know, any more blunt than that. Mm -hmm. So the reason why I say that is because we take great pains. So if there is a customer meeting, who are the attendees? Um, more than how many? Who, what are the roles? You know, whose attention are we getting? If it is a marketing event, then how many people actually came and attended? And there is proactive marketing. There is proactive, you know, uh, I work with teams to how do you deliver the message? What is the message? Who is the messenger? All of that. It's about getting mind share in the market. And I'm, less, I'm not so much the numbers person about, you know, uh, what is the market share and market cap, and there are other people who do that, but I'm all about, you know, mind share with context, because that to me is really where you get engagement from the people for the right reason. So I have been to marketing events where there is reasonable attendance. Now, we acquired Ansible as an automation tool, and then I found that with very minimal marketing, uh, the Ansible workshops, we will have the attendees number more than like the hundreds and, or the thousands and so on. And if um, uh, for other topics, if we have to, you know, and that, there are some hotter topics than others, let's put it that way. So in some cases, it would be kind of a, a brewery, and typically it's a brewery where we would come together for obvious reasons. But then there are some cases where it has to be like the Toyota Stadium in Dallas or the U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis. And suddenly, you know, that's what you need to host the 400 people, the 800 people who are attending. And I used to think it is because it is Red Hat. It's actually because it is Ansible. And even though Ansible is a product we own, it is that adoption in the open source community of a project, a technology that actually gets the mind share. So it is much less about the tool you like. You want to make sure that you are, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, iPhone or Android. You know, imagine owning a phone that is not the, the, what the majority, or you're kind of on your own, right? But technology is something where you need the ability to quickly chat with someone, text somebody, or ask somebody in Slack, and there is open conversation. It's kind of like the world's largest study group for a you know homework assignment or something. That's what you want to be. You don't want to be in a position where you're the only person. Like, look at where we are with the mainframe. The reason why companies want to modernize is, you know, yes, there is a technology angle. Yes, there is a high maintenance cost and so on. But one of the key drivers is really the people who wrote it are no longer around. The people who know it are no longer around. And suddenly... There is fear in touching that code because who knows what's going to happen if you just take a semicolon out, right? So the adoption of willing adoption, voluntary adoption, uh, is key to where you hang your hat on. When I was 20, it was um, definitely more about, hey, what excites me, 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 more than what the, the world, where the world is headed. Because... Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't want to justify that, but you know that's how I was thinking. I wish I had known that you kind of have to look at the broader adoption curve uh, in advance. And the open source. So, if you have heard, I mean, I'm sure you've heard about the fail fast approach, mm -hmm. and that is so so true of the open source community. I'm not here saying that every there are a million projects going on, but very few see the light of day. So there is kind of a self monitoring, self cleaning mechanism, you try something, doesn't work, boom, it's history. And that happens all the time. 
So adoption is, it means something. That means this is viable. It works. People trust it. Yeah. So your answer leads right into my next question, which was, what are the pieces of advice that you would give people who are just starting out their career? I mean, we've already touched on willingness to learn and, and adapt to, to new tools, uh, communication and collaboration with your peers. Are there other kind of key points that for younger people, you would say this is this is something that you should keep in mind and you should focus on? Absolutely. So there are many more channels than uh, I'll be dating myself. Uh, you know, it, it is decades since I came out of college. And um, at that time, we did not have uh, the internet or the social media and the access to technology, no matter where you are, you can work from anywhere and so on. So if you are, so, so this is addressed more to the ones who are technolo- technically inclined. And if they want to be innovative engineers, innovative technologists, and eventually uh, leaders uh, in enterprises, you do want to know more about what you are working on and what you could be leading in the future. So, uh, and to that end, it helps to understand how technology is working today. What are some of the key uh, you know, technology paradigms that are in flight, whether it be cloud and automation and data integration, data analytics, and so on. So to definitely get your understanding of what is in flight, but don't rest there. You also have to look ahead as to where is the world headed? So quantum computing could be one example. Uh, adoption of blockchain could be another example. And then the you know augmented reality and look for the application. Look at your daily life. Look at how you are taking a flight. What is your own customer experience? How can your own experience be better? This whole idea of this startup that uh, that has come up, you know, more recently, this concept of having startup companies when I came out of college was, whoa, do you really want to risk all of that? You know, starting a new company, my God. But that has shifted. And the reason why is because these are innovators who actually see an opportunity. There is a niche market where it is not being addressed. So you can, you know, I'm not saying every, all the technologists should just start their own companies. What I'm saying is that by being a customer, we are all customers in some shape or form, whether we do groceries or take a flight, go to the bank, pick up, you know, make a phone call with our cell phone and whatnot. There is a customer experience angle. And if you actually see areas where there are, you know, there is scope for improvement, think about what technology can do for you. What can, what is it doing today? What could it do in the future? And be the innovators of what the, you know, the next big idea is, and then submit that as an idea. Forget about, you know, I'm not a huge advocate of, you know, patenting and me, 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 and all of that. I mean, there, you will get there, but share the idea and collaborate with others. The moment you share it with others, it, you know, it, it is bound, it can only uh, grow, it can only get better. Even if somebody were to shoot it down, you will see why the idea may not take flight and you will look at it a different way. So, Don't be shy and share the ideas. So there you go. Three tenets. One is get a good good understanding of the technologies in flight today. See where it can be applied to fill the gap. And then don't be shy about suggesting ideas on how that could be implemented going forward. So this brings us right back around uh, to quantum. And my question for you is, do you have any idea how that kind of melds together with the, the open source concept? Because... Like there are algorithms that are open. I think the one that most people have probably heard of is Shor's algorithm. Um, there are other algorithms, of course. But obviously, because of the technical requirements of actually ha- having one that works, I mean, it's not exactly like I can just you know pop out to the store and buy one. And the hardware isn't open like x86 because the engineering requirements are so vast. How do you see open source and quantum working together? Yeah, it's a, this may come across as a setup, you know, for a plug, but the the way IBM was approaching it even before Red Hat is there is an open source community for IBM Quantum. It is the quantum information. I don't want to try to expand it, but it's called Qiskit, Q-I-S-K-I-T. And that is available to everyone. And 
that actually provides you ways to leverage quantum techniques for different problems. And you can uh, you can code, you can write code using the Qiskit framework for uh, to address problems. And there is a community out there where it is growing. And Red Hat has actually contributed in that community with operators for container platforms for Kubernetes and so on. So yes, it, it has already happened. The reason why is because to IBM's credit, so um, there is a, you know, there are ways that customers can get privileged membership uh, in the IBM quantum community. There are customers who actually have a dedicated IBM quantum computer on premise just for their needs. And you know, different customers, they, they treat it differently. But if you want to kind of explore, research, tippy-toe into this world, you, you don't have to wait to sign a deal for a quantum computer. You can have employees go there and there are programs where for high schools where there is curriculum, summer schools on getting on board with quantum computing through Qiskit. There is a program for Qiskit advocates. So I am a quantum ambassador. I'm not a Qiskit advocate, but customers can have, companies can have their engineers sign up for that. And they are in the know. And they are, you don't even have to build a quantum center of excellence internally. Instead, you can just go work this and then come back to us with ideas on what problems are germane to us that we can solve internally. That's the way to do it. So Qiskit, Q-I-S-K-I-T is the answer, JT. Okay, I'll definitely put a, a link to that information in the show notes. The the quantum aspect, it's it's really interesting to, to kind of think about, and it's, it's an interesting thought experiment of exactly how it's going to change the world when quantum computing is more accessible. Now, obviously, I don't think everyone's you know going to have a quantum computer in their basement in the next decade or so. Obviously not. But when we get to the point where, let's say, every university or every company has, say, an, I don't know, 8 to 16 qubit system, I kind of wonder if that's going to be like mainframes in the 70s when they finally just started to move out of research and academia and then actually started to get adopted by large industry. I'm wondering if we're going to see a similar thing with the adoption of quantum. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so it's, an, it's a very well-phrased question because... In fact, one of the slides that I show customers is it's a matrix, two-dimensional, where there are technologies like artificial intelligence and data analytics and so on. And then simulation comes in where there is a lot of uh, data that needs to be churned and then uh, processed to quickly come back with, you know, here is what this would look like. And... That could be in the chemical world, in the medical, the healthcare the setup, financial modeling. These are areas where we have seen more opportunities where customers see value. So that matrix is about four columns wide and about four rows. So there are some technology paradigms like what I said, but there is also, you know, it is healthcare, financial, chemical. These are the areas where we see more adoption. And the approach that we have taken is also the business value. So there are papers that have been published on use cases in financials. What is the business value of quantum for use cases? And when you talk to decision makers at customers, they are less excited about terms that they have never heard before, um, but they are more excited about you know, why should we invest a single dollar in this? Why, why, why are we better off? I mean, they are... I sometimes feel every leader, including the CEO, is answerable to the CFO. So I, I just, just get that sense, you know, for some funny reason. So the business value question gets asked. I get asked that question. So we are checking the box, so to speak, on where we see business value. So you're not going to see a business value paper for every industry out there. And that, that's kind of telling that we see more value in some more than the others. So... If I were to predict, I would say the industries where we have taken the bold step of advocating business value uh, is where I see adoption. And those are the ones that I have listed. The others will take, maybe it will be more like one-off projects. Uh, there are always exceptions. But as a general trend, if I had to cast the net and 
place my bet. I would rather take an industry approach and then see within that which bank, uh, which healthcare provider, and so on. So aside from quantum, looking more generally to, to open source at large, what do you see being developed or improved that gets you the most excited? Like what stands out to you that you look at and you go this, this right here, this is exciting stuff. This is where people need to keep their eyes on because this is going to change the world. Security comes to mind and especially given recent attacks, ransomware and whatnot. Again, another very well posed question because from a Red Hat perspective, we have articles and blogs out there about, you know, digital transformation and, you know, application of Kubernetes and different integration, you name a buzzword and we have it there. And usually it will tie to products that we have. So there is, that's a more a marketing effort. Uh, We are in business to make money as well. Even with an open source development model, it is intriguing how we do that, but we are, right? But I want to talk about, not talk about that. I want to talk about two sites. One is next.redhat.com. And what that is about is not so much about the products. It is about the projects that we are engaged in. And I just went to that site and I see that, you know, there are articles in there about a trusted computing base. It is about software signing for the masses. So just like you have supply chain, there is a software chain. How do you make sure there is digital signage that actually validates that, you know, this is the software is right. Uh, It is not malware, right? It is not ransomware and so on. And there is this notion that open source is not secure. It's quite to the contrary. So on the one hand, from an enterprise perspective, we take that open source, we bring it into our platform, we harden it, we you know secure it, we make it enterprise grade. That's what we provide for customers. But even otherwise, like blockchain, it is about you know different parties owning a portion of that transaction and then being the authority on that. And open source is kind of you know having multiple pairs of eyes. So if someone were to go and change something in Wikipedia someone else is going to come and fix that. So there is a there is a constant monitoring of what is going on. So there is a different aspect of security that you get with open source because it is by the programmers for the programmers, right? So I see security definitely being taken to next levels, ironically, through open source. So that's one area. And nextupredhat.com is a good site to monitor. It has... It does not result in a product sale necessarily. It is all about what we are seeing and evangelizing in the the open source community. That's that, emerging technologies. Our office of the CTO, and this gives me so much pride, there is a, that site is called research.redhat.com. And what that is about is when we work with various academic institutions like uh, MIT, Boston University. In fact, we there is a Red Hat collaboratory for open, open source development that just got announced for an innovative partnership. And we bring the faculty of said universities to collaborate on research that they want to see. And I have huge respect. I have respect for the industry leaders There is a reason why I am going back to one of your earlier observations. There is a reason why I take pride in being on the advisory board, not just because I have real-life industry experience, but I learn from the faculty on that. I mean, I I never cease to learn. And, you know, teachers, uh, professors, they are, I I hold them, uh, you know, at a different, uh, my respect for them is a notch higher, multiple notches higher than other professions. Let's just put it that way. So, to me, it is to our credit and our privilege that institutions like MIT are working with us to kind of break new ground with research on what could be next. I'll give you an example. During the COVID time, we actually worked with uh, set colleges on contact tracing, on having a protocol which would actually be uh, sensitive to data privacy. So if someone had contact with somebody else who was already infected, um, we, we want to know that, you know, the location where it happened, but not necessarily the details about the person. We want to keep that private. 
So how do we make sure that we are sensitive to that data privacy and compliance issue? And how can the protocol uh, address that? That's what we worked on. Absolutely nothing to do with, you know, our products and Red Hat Linux and, you know, containers and whatnot. It's all about the open mindset and collaboration. And I see more promise in making it real for the, the in real life, basically. That's what, so security and working with academia. Thanks for letting me know about those two sites. Uh, just glancing at them real quick. Some of the topics look really interesting. I think I just found my reading material for the weekend. <laughs> Um, so the links for those will be in the show notes for everyone listening to kind of take that next logical step. Then what are some things that come to your mind that are issues that we as technologists should put more effort into solving? Like, for example, the scaling issue was a problem for a very long time in it, you know, being able to scale up and down your infrastructure as needed instead of paying for a massive system that sits idle 90% of the time, because 10% of the time you actually need it. Whereas now you can expand when demand is high. You can shrink when demand is low. That was pretty much an issue in computing, well, since forever. And we've now, in the last five to 10 years, really gotten a handle on that and found ways to address it. Do you have thoughts on other things now that we as technologists should be focusing on to tackle? Not just necessarily the challenges that we're dealing with on the day-to-day, -day, but the ones that we kind of can see on the horizon already. Yeah, you know, not to repeat myself, but... I see the need to be open from a technology standpoint uh, to be very vital as well. So I'm sure every enterprise will go through a modernization exercise at some point in their lifetime. I cannot believe that the technology that was put in place years back, decades back, will continue to exist in the decades to come. Even though even today, when you take a flight, the, the, there are mainframes that are kind of controlling you know, the flight path and so on. Uh, but that said, there will be continuous modernization. I would say CTOs, uh, CIOs, the, the focus should be on how you can have the freedom to deploy your workloads in the environment of your choice, not be dictated by a particular platform or provider or vendor because you don't know the workloads that, you, you honestly don't know the nature of all the workloads you have in the enterprise. I'll make a tall claim. Those who are a little more humble will agree, you know. <laughs> but the, also, the mergers and acquisitions, they are only growing. So the, the workloads you have today may be very different from how they are going to look with acquisitions and alliances being struck and the need for collaborating with trading partners and so on. So. Agility and flexibility you need to deploy workloads on the platform of your choice, uh, on open platforms, will allow you to actually focus innovation on the business of the enterprise rather than the business of IT. And the good news is there are open platforms that are available today. You can proactively choose to be open, but that's where you're focus should be. I'm not here to advocate any particular product or vendor or any such thing, but make sure you retain, uh, if you didn't have the freedom, attain the freedom and then retain it. Don't be held hostage that, oh, I am constrained by here is the only place where I can operate and deploy my workloads. That's a key mantra that I would say. A piggyback on that, um, Data integration, the need to, data has taken even more of a front seat than it did ever because with the migration to cloud and with the migration to other environments, the need to process and analyze data and use that to your advantage has just gone exponential. So it is not so much about the data itself, but don't lose seamless access to data. Make sure that the data is accurate. Because when you are implementing AI technologies, the artificial intelligence is only as good as the data you feed it. So if there are, you know, if the data is corrupt, if there is intrinsic bias, you know, the historical data, you're, you know, setting yourself prey to having the same bias, except that it is a computer telling you rather than a human. So you want to make sure that the ethical aspects, the emotional aspects of what the AI solutions are saying um, 
uh, you know, you, you pay attention to that. And there is an old cliche that business ethics is an oxymoron. You don't want technology ethics to become one either. So Nadan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today and, and sharing your thoughts with me. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. If there's people that want to follow up on what you're doing and kind of keep tabs on the stuff that you're working on, uh, is LinkedIn the best place for them to follow you at? Yeah, I sometimes I get the sense I post more often than I should, but I'm not shy on LinkedIn for sure. Okay, well, I will put uh, your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. If you're listening and you've liked, uh, you liked what you heard, definitely check out some of the stuff that he's written on LinkedIn. It's fantastic. But then thanks again. You're very welcome. Great chatting with you, Jacob.